0: And in this interview, we talk about two of his books, uh, Words for What Those Men Have Done and The Silence of Men. And Richard is a teacher as well. So in the beginning of our interview, which I didn't include here because we had a really long and amazing talk and I had to cut things. Thanks, Fly. Bye. Bye. Um, He's a teacher as well. And he, um, gosh, this interview with Richard Newman just taught me so many things. And I'm so grateful. Uh, I think he's an amazing poet on so many levels and I love these books. So I'm grateful to have met Richard and I hope that you really enjoy this interview. The interview is a bit long so I'm not going to play music but you heard some great music from Fly. I hope you were listening to Fly's show. If not, find him on kkup.org and find out what he was playing because it was amazing. So we'll go right into uh, Richard Newman and then I'll be back at the end of the show. And I'm here at the studio, so if you want to give us a call and become a member, you can give us a call. The number is 408-260-2999 or 831-480-1999. Give us a call, become a member, support poetry, support KKUP, and here's Richard Newman and me, I think. Hold on. There we go. We're getting there. Besides teaching, I mean, outside of teaching. You, you have so many things published. I'm so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, my goodness. I was just, I've been reading, well, I've been, I, I told you I'd been living with your two books, um, The Silence right. of Men and Words for What Those Men Have Done. Um, I really like, you gave them to me a, a while back and I've had them on my desk and then I finally said, oh, okay, I've got to start living with these books. And, you know, it, they're really good. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, they're just the Silence of Men is what I read first. I read chronologically, right, right. And you know, there were lots of things that I wanted to, well, lots of feelings that I w- was unsure about going into the books. Um, you know, the silence. You- yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm going to try and articulate it, but I'm not sure how well. Well, how, how let me ask you this first what what how did the silence of men come about what is the intention of of the collect this collection for you
1: well that's a (laughs) big question um (laughs) well okay so i mean it it's it it is for me i mean how shall i say this independently of the fact that it's a first book right so Mm -hmm. as a first book it's kind of a a hodgepodge of things mm-hmm. that I had been writing, right? So it, it's not, it, I don't know that it was in, intentional in the sense. Words for what those men have done, for example, is I, I had a much more focused idea of what I wanted it to be as a book.
0: That's what I thought. Okay, right.
1: right. So the silence of men. I mean, you know, so the silence of men is a first book, and so it's it's much more of a catch-all of things that I had been writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but on a personal level um without without saying without claiming that the book actually achieves this in a way that would be really obvious let's say to you as a reader who didn't know me personally mm-hmm. right um, you know i was i was sexually assaulted when i was a kid mm. and um Jeez. for me the book there are there are two poems in in the silence of men that tell that story from from kind of different perspectives.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so uh, The Silence of Men, the book is about breaking that silence. Okay. Right, for me personally, and I think I mean to some degree because there there's a much larger silence around um sexual violence against men than yes. there is around sexual violence against women.
0: Yes. Yes, there is.
1: Right, and so I think I think from that, I mean, that's what the book did for me. Whether that's what the book is when you read it is, is another question.
0: <laughs> well, that's always the question once we put it out there. My goodness. Right. <laughs> it's true. Um, you know, I, well, I felt that. I felt that. And I also felt I I was um, oscillating between the two. What I felt were lines of discussion, which was the sexual abuse and, and, its relationship to uh, sex itself, mm-hmm. and then also the stories from um, your family, like or at least from your culture. Um, the one that struck me so hard was uh, Rachel's story in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I yeah, so so there was so explain a little bit to my uh, listenership, sort of the, your background and why you would write something like Rachel's story.
1: Okay, well, I am. Um, I'm. I'm Jewish. Okay. When I was, and so Rachel's story. There, are, I should say there are a bunch of poems in the book that are monologues.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they're 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 sonnets actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're they're monologues. Most of them are Holocaust survivors, and the voices of Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one in the voice of a woman who had an abortion, an illegal abortion, mm-hmm. um, before Roe v. Wade. And there's one of a man whose girlfriend, when, this is again pre-Roe v. Wade, um, a man whose girlfriend was um, became pregnant and the parents took her away to, at the time, you know, at that time often what would happen was preg- un- pregnant pregnant underage, especially underage girls, um, were taken away to homes where they gave birth and then they were forced to give the children up and the, the home would... Give the child up for adoption, and and neither the the, boor, the man or the woman involved would ever see the child again. Mm. Um, I mean, that's I guess oh, in the 1950s <laughs> they were still doing that.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's crazy. I'm sorry. That's crazy. It's crazy to think about um, that way because I I can't imagine the world before Roe v Wade. So I don't know what the structures were like. So it's always a surprise to hear these like these infrastructures of of um processing our bodies and our things oh absolutely i mean
1: i was six roe v wade was 69 i believe right Mm -hmm. so i was seven Mm -hmm. so it's not like this is you know that's not that's not part of my lived experience really because i was seven years old Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but i certainly heard the stories and i remember the debates and i remember you know so when I was old enough to start to have debates about about women's reproductive rights and to be part of that discussion, those stories were not that far in the past.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Yeah. So, you know, so, it, so it's part of my, what, collective memory? Not collective memory, but you know what I mean. It's yeah. part of the cultural memory that I have about the whole issue of we- women's reproductive rights because I, w- I was alive back then. Right. Um, so those poems... <clears throat> um, the Holocaust poems came about because, well, it was. I mean, I I spent one summer reading a whole bunch of Holocaust survivor di Holocaust diaries. They weren't mm-hmm. survivor diaries. Um, one in particular called the Kovno Ghetto Diary, which was um, I forget when it was discovered. I read the book a very long time ago,
2: mm-hmm. Um,
1: mm-hmm. but it was it was um, discovered in this ghetto, the Kovno Ghetto, and I was just moved you know by 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 what i read and so the poems came those poems came about as kind of my way to come to terms with certain aspects of of the holocaust
0: yeah
1: and of being jewish and of having that be such an important um part of my my understanding of the world right an understanding of the world's position towards me yes right um the, and and for me, that dovetailed... I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and braid together like three different strands here. The way in which I started to come to terms with having been sexually violated
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, was through feminism. Mm. So in when I was, I guess, about 18 or 19 years old, so that would be nineteen eighty eighty one 81, mm-hmm. or right there... Um, I started to read, and I don't remember why I started to read them, but I started to read um, what people would now call, you know, white second wave feminists, okay, right? right. Um, and I don't, I mean that, I and mean, that's kind of the description. I don't mean that as a disparaging
0: race. Right, or any, no, right.
1: Um, but I read, you know, so um, Adrienne Rich, mm-hmm. Marilyn French, <laughs> Andrea Dworkin, Catherine McKinnon, those people.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Um, and... The thing that uh, what was happening then, the only feminism, the women's movement was the only place where there was a vocabulary to describe sexual violence. Forget. I mean, obviously, they were talking about sexual violence against women, Mm -hmm. but it was the only place there was where there was a vocabulary to talk about sexual violence that made it absolutely 100 percent clear Mm
2: -hmm. that
1: the person who was violated was in no way shape or form at fault for what was done to them that the person who did the violating bore 100 percent of the responsibility for what they did and i I distinctly remember i was reading an essay by adrian rich and there was this i I mean I, i i don't have the um the title of the essay right off the top of my head that's okay but um, I was reading this essay, and I don't. And I was read this passage, and this little voice in my head—it was a real voice in my
0: head—said,
1: mm-hmm. "You know, well, but what about me?
0: Uh, you know,
1: what, about, yeah. what about what about what about what happened to me?" Yeah. Um, and so, for me, feminism—that feminism became central, really. Right. To how I understood my place in the world.
0: Right, I mean that's uh, not. I, th- I mean that's not an uncommon discussion about, you know, a lot of places where language isn't quite there yet. I mean, I think about my relationship to uh, the discussion of people of color and what's happening today, and it wasn't until I was in graduate school studying um, black poetry with black professors who were talking about the coming to terms that that they had and their community had to race racism and and the discussion and the vocabulary that was created there that I thought oh those are the words that describe the things that I've been feeling my whole life but I'm not black right (laughs) which was you know which was the whole thing in my book it was like uh, oh I'm going through this stuff but I'm not I'm not black so what does this mean like how do we define it so that's a really um Really good point.
1: <laughs> no, uh, yeah. And, I mean, the interesting, I mean, there's a whole other conversation, which is not really in either of, the. Uh, of, you know, it's not really in my poetry so much. Mm. But an, a really interesting conversation is also that, I mean, when black writers or black scholars um, write about black poetry and coming to terms with racism, you may not be a black person but your position is analogous mm. to the position of African-Americans in this culture. I mean, obviously there are differences, there are different histories, but but there's an analogous positioning, right? Right. What was interesting, what what I sort of at some point had to come to terms with was that, okay, yeah, that language described what happened to me, but the language that was critical of men and masculinity and manhood also described me. Oh, Right. So, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, they, the women who were writing it, they were not writing about me. Mm -hmm. I was, I mean, you know, you know, I was, I, I, well, I mean, to put it, to put it in really stark terms, despite my experience, I was still, quote unquote, the
0: enemy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: And so, and so having to come to terms with, with being on, so to speak, on both sides.
0: No, uh, you know, uh, this is this is a conversation that is really live for me right now um, in a lot of ways, uh, this discussion about, you know, how do we how do we move forward, empowering um, conversations about writers of color, people of color, um, sexual abuse, feminism, so on and so forth, but also um, sort of don't vilify, people who we cannot place people who don't exist in certain places um my my husband my husband's a white guy he's a tall you know good-looking white guy (laughs) (laughs) and he goes you know and he goes to a a community college right now he's studying aerospace and a Um, lot of his classmates are chicanos like me and um you know he walks in and he says no one ever sits next to him he's always the last one to be sat next to and i'm like oh well i don't I don't think it's anything really, but he says that he's, he's aware that what he looks like to people is probably someone who would not agree with the discussions that are happening in class. He looks like someone who, um, maybe doesn't represents what is considered the quote unquote enemy when it comes to the discussions of Chicano history and all these other things that he's part of, um. But what they don't see is that he has, you know, he has the struggle the same as I do and we're part of the same conversation. And then, and then Chris isn't the only one. I also have students in my classes who have w- white male students in my classes who have come to me afterwards and said things like, hey, I'm really glad that you include the sort of white poor and t- discussion about whiteness as being um, the enemy and not white men because I... I feel like I'm also part of this discussion, but I don't know how to be part of this discussion. Yeah, you know, and I and I'm gonna be honest with you. I've called friends that are have been teaching for years, and I'm like, hey, how do you guys deal with like white guys in your class? You know, when you're talking, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like I'm not well, trying not to sure. be a jerk, but like, how do you guys like? How do you make it so that everyone's in because I feel like that's my job as a teacher to make everyone included. Um and, and I have I have really good friends, really good teacher friends who say, Well I just don't bother. Yeah. And, and so part of me is like You know, there's this, I I don't know if you've heard it, but maybe you have. There's this large discussion in in a lot of um, communities of writers of color, people of color, also in like uh, LGBTQ communities that say like, it's not our responsibility to educate you in the things about our culture. And it's not our responsibility. We're tired of trying to tell you to use different pronouns. We're tired of telling you what it means to be a person of color. You know, all those things. But on one on the other hand. I think about the things that my grandfather said when he was working on civil rights movement type stuff and migrant farm worker stuff. And he said, mija, it's los hippies that helped us pass all of these laws. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. So we have allies, you know, there's allies there. And so I don't know, you know, this is a really live conversation. And I think... You're hitting something when you say that. Hey, there was this vocabulary about feminism, and I was living on this dual perspective.
1: I, I think, you know, the, the, hmm. one of the things that I think, I and from my own experience that I learned, and a, a little bit, I think these this is in well more than a little bit, I suppose. Um, this is behind the writing of some of the poems in in both books. Mm-hmm if you are in that position so if you're the white guy
2: Mm. right Mm -hmm. if you're the
1: white guy and you have a teacher of color
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um and so and and let's assume that 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 teacher is doing what because this i do believe it is our responsibility as teachers regardless of who we are regardless of who our students are right i mean we are responsible for making the classroom a safe space yes Right. I mean, regard, so let's assume the teacher is doing that job, at least
0: mm-hmm.
1: a safe space shouldn't mean necessarily a comfortable space. OK. Right. Okay. And, and I think one of the hardest things to do if you are the white guy or whoever that person may be, is to learn to live for a while in that discomfort. Mm. Because the discomfort is necessary. Mm hmm. You know, I mean, it's absolutely necessary if you're going to become something more than an ally of convenience. Ah, right. And I mean, ally. I don't know. If I, I I just made. I don't. know. I'm sure the term exists, but it, but you know what I mean by it. I right? do. I do. Right. You know, the person who is an ally because it makes them feel good.
0: Yes. No, I do. Right.
1: And so you know, I I am I am you're reminding me of. Um, I mean, we haven't even gotten to talk about the poems yet but I'll tell you the story <laughs> <laughs> when i was uh in the 80s no in the 90s um i, I dropped out of graduate school the first time i went <laughs> i was i was at i was in the um i was in the creative writing masters degree at syracuse university mm-hmm. they didn't have an mfa at that time so this was ni- 1984 85 and that was when um, Tess Gallagher was there, Raymond Carver was there, wow. Hayden Carruth was there, Philip Booth was <laughs> there, right? And I dropped out for reasons that had nothing to do actually with the poetry side. But I, I, I dropped out and I went to work for an organization that I don't think exists anymore called B'nai Brith Hillel Jackie. And that, it was a Jewish community organization, and I had the um, wonderful title of Jewish Campus Professional. Mm. And what Jewish campus professionals did, you, you know what Hillel? You know what the Hillel is? They're like the Jewish student organizations yeah. that are kind of nationally on campuses. Yes. Okay, so I I ran the Hillel at um, a college in on Long Island called C.W. Post, mm. which is part of Long Island University. And the guy who was the president there, um, his name was David Steinberg. He mandated that every year there would be something called a racial awareness workshop. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was a three day workshop. Um, I believe the, the, I believe the guy who ran it was name was Don white. I think that's his name. Anyway. Um, and I, in, in that workshop, it was a very well-done workshop. And I remember going home after the, after the first, you know, the finally dawned on me, it hit me, right? Mm-hmm. Just what institutionalized racism was and just, you know, how many, the ways in which I, I had racism in me, right? Just right. from growing from the mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. I was horrified. Mm. <laughs> I was humiliated. Yeah. I was, I was, Devastated, right? Because it went against everything I believed about myself, right? My self image, and I went home, and I remember I wrote for hours in my journal, mm-hmm. and you know I kind of came out the other side after that. I kind of came out the other side and said, "Well, look, I'm, I can't, I can't blame myself for growing up who I am, where I am, and all of that. What matters is what I do going forward." Right. But I remember the experience of going back into that room. With that feeling of discomfort,
0: yeah,
1: right, and you have to you have to be able. I mean, I, what I learned from that is you have to be able to live with that discomfort. Yes, um, and I think that that's part of where the. I mean, you know, that when I think about anti semitism, and I think you know what it's not my it's not my job to educate you, you not you personally, yeah. but to educate you right mm-hmm. about anti semitism. Part of where that, I think part of where that comes from is you, I mean, I, why should I take away your discomfort for you? That discomfort is important. Yes. And if you really care about this issue, you'll live with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, that that's a good way, that's a good way of, of putting it. And that's a good way of me sort of, I'm trying to synthesize all of these things, trying to understand how to, um, yeah, how to manage a classroom where there's just a lot of different kinds of people in a conversation that can often feel like, um, you know, we're talking about brown people. And in, in my classes, I mostly only teach brown writers. I mean, right. very rarely do. I mean, that's just because uh, you know, I mean, my education was in the canon and I mean, I'm grateful for that. That's the weird. So I'm rambling now. But one of my <laughs> I know, one of my really good friends said to me, um, he said, you know, Rochelle, you, you you're teaching against the canon because you had the education of the canon. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and I thought, that's true. My students are getting they're getting the education of the sort of rejection of the canon, but a lot of them don't have the canon itself, right? They don't know who Adrian Rich is. They don't know who right. Whitman is. And so I'm, I'm trying to come to grips with lots of things with in, in terms of education. Like, who do I teach? How do I tell them? Like, the things that I'm teaching you now come from a rejection of a long-term sort of system that maybe you should know about because you're in academics, but I don't know if I want to <laughs> teach it to you.
1: <laughs> you know, it's it's an it's an, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, my first poetry teacher was June Jordan.
0: <laughs> when, Damn. When she,
1: <laughs> I, she was when I she was in, in. I mean, I'm going back. You know, thirty something years now. More than thirty four, yeah, thirty uh, something years now, right?
2: Yeah. almost four,
1: almost forty years. Um, I was an undergraduate at Stony Brook University when she was there, oh. and she and she taught the very first um, poetry workshop that I ever took, and that experience. But also, I mean, after that, I read just about everything she had written. Um, and one of the things that that when I think back now. Two of the thing, some of the things that I learned from her were, um, so first of all, as a poet, you know, I mean, she was deeply steeped in in the canon, mm. right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And 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 not just from the point of view of reading, but as a poet, I mean, I learned to write sonnets from her, right? Right? I mean, she was, you know, as a matter of craft, that you should be able to master form was central to the way she thought about her own work right um but the other thing that that she said in the class and i do you know do you know her the book poetry for the people yes right so one i mean she she, it it is articulated much more more fully there because that came you know years after i was in her class but one of the things she talked about was you know if you make a distinction right Mm -hmm. and this is my I don't know that she said it this way but this is sort of my paraphrasing right my my understanding mm-hmm. you know if you make the distinction between canonicity
2: mm-hmm.
1: right which is a cultural process by which certain books by certain people who look a certain way or whatever 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 mm-hmm. become the official canon
2: mm-hmm. right mm-hmm.
1: if you make so if you make a distinction between canonicity as opposed to literary tradition mm. And then, you know, the question that she, one of the questions she would ask, and she actually makes this kind of explicit in Portrait for the People, is, you know, how does your work participate in and extend a tradition? Mm. So, you know, if you're writing in English in the United States, right. you are part of a tradition that includes Whitman, that includes Langston Hughes, that includes, you know, um, um, june jordan that includes i'm trying to think of it was a name that went through my head but you know you're, you're part of a tradition that includes all of that
2: mm-hmm.
1: right and so to think about it you know not uh, as writers i mean it you know the, the the difference between thinking about it as a critic where i think you have to take on the concept you you have to take on canada city
0: mm-hmm.
1: as opposed to thinking about it as a writer yeah Right where you t- and so you know from and and when I teach literature, I mean even like the psychoanalytic approach to literature class that I'm teaching, I try to approach the teaching of literature as a writer. Right. Even if I'm teaching a criti- like a class, it's not criticism, but you know what I mean. A class where where, where creative writing is not the center center of the class. Right. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of how I make sense of the question you asked.
0: Well, dude. You- <laughs> I'm so, I'm so happy to have talked to you before I started, uh, before I came on contract. (laughs) 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 I mean, this is helping me so much. And these are the kinds of conversations that I, that I don't, I just haven't heard. I haven't, I haven't been privy to, to listen to or to read about that concept of literary tradition. That's what I've been feeling. Like, you know, I, I, I get, I get sort of razzed on by my poetry friends who I think are amazing people and doing amazing things all over the world. But I get razzed on because whenever I talk about poetry, one of my favorite poets is Robinson Jeffers. Oh, he's <laughs> marvelous. Right. But it's like, you know, I remember even in a class uh, with the professor, he asked something like that. And I said, oh, I love Robinson Jeffers. And he said, he kind of gave me a funny face and, and said something like, oh, that's interesting. And at the time I had no clue what, why he found that interesting
2: mm.
0: and so i kind of asked him and he i i bugged him about it after class i was like what do you mean that's interesting like why i mean i'm from california like obviously it's and he's like well i just thought it was kind of you know you're like chicana poet and like you know robinson jeffers and and he's not the only one a lot of people have razzed on me like i said about jeffers but it it <laughs> You know, and it's like, oh, it's it's uncool to like this like really white you... privileged right. <laughs> man of <laughs> man of poetry that's like steeped in very 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 archaic romanticism, but right. you know, uh, <laughs> well, don't screw th- it. Don't,
1: <laughs> don't don't you think that's also? I mean, that's that's a kind. I mean, that's a kind of essentialism, mm. right? Yeah. I mean, because you're Chicana, therefore, I mean, your favorite poet must be, yeah, you know, a Latino poet of what you know. Maybe not Mexican, maybe not of Mexican descent, right? But it must right. be someone, right? Must be someone who's dealing with those issues.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, re- <laughs> I realize I realized that happened. <laughs> I mean, that's the uh, that
1: that is a problem, right? Mm. You are that you know you you are a particular person from a particular history with a particular experience, and it's really convenience to therefore pigeonhole your reading and your writing into that box as well
0: (laughs) oh I love Jeffers um anyway let's let's get into your book let's read a couple can you read a couple of poems that you like to read from Silence of Men and then we'll move forward and talk about um words for what those men have done
1: Sure. So I thought what I would do. Um, I, I have taken to starting readings that I give, just because I think it's important these days. Um, I've taken to reading love po- uh, Two love poems. Okay. Um, at the beginning of ev- pretty much every reading that I give, and so I thought I would just read those.
2: Okay. And then mm-hmm.
1: if and then if there are others that, that you know you're kind of interested in hearing, you would let me know.
2: Okay.
1: Um, so these are both from the Silence of Men. Yes. And the first one is called Light. Should I read them both or just one?
0: Read them both, please.
1: Okay. So the first one is called Light. In the dream, my life was smoke. I couldn't breathe. So I ran, unwrapping myself down the beach till your skin, the ocean, lapped at my knees. I dove in. Your voice was a current, a melody gathering words to itself for us to sing, and we sang them, and they swirled around us, iridescent fish bringing light to the world you were for me. And then I was water, a river washing the night from your flesh, and I cradled your body rising in me till you were clean, glowing. And when you surfaced, glistening, there was not an inch of you, I didn't cling to. Mm. And the second one is called because. Because I refuse to learn to say goodbye, these words. But because they are not my skin, and because my fingers are not syllables, and because your voice on the phone is not breath I can take into my mouth and taste. And the phone, when we speak, is not your body in my arms or your hand lifting my chin, so our eyes meet when you say, I love you. And because when I imagine your hand lifting my chin, I want to live within that moment with you the way language lives within us, I am here, wrestling these lines into form. And because the form is me when you read it, I'll be there, and we'll touch.
0: Oh, Oh, those are such great... I'm I'm earmarking those those love poems because... My side job is marrying people. (laughs) (laughs) And I love finding love poems. Oh, those are so great. Thank you. I really liked Wormhole.
1: Wormholes. So there's an epigraph Wormhole. In physics, a hypothetical connection between widely separated regions of space time. It's afternoon. Hours before he needs to be awake, but he has to tell me. My friends are waiting, and my mother isn't home. I'm seven. He's her second husband, drives a night truck delivering bread we get free loaves of. My tears, his midday sleep is holy ground, start the moment I call him. On the other side, he's above me, his fists and his voice a jackhammer's rage. Another hole opens and my hair is in the hand he drags me to the kitchen with, still yelling, pushing ice against the blood across my face. Then I'm wrapped in a blanket, sitting beside my mother in their bedroom. Why does he always call me sissy? Stop crying, she answers. You fell out of bed. That's all.
0: Jeez. So, um... So I thought it was interesting when you said that The Silence of Men was your first book and so it was this collection of of poems that represents what you were writing at the time which I think is true for a lot of first books about yeah. te- but but not not now. Today first books are completely different. I know. Um, did
1: you ever read did you ever read Evan, yeah, Evan Boland has a really marvelous essay about the fact that first books aren't first books anymore.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna have look you re- up. No. have you seen that essay? No, but I'll look it up.
1: It's a re- it's really interesting because she she kind of talks about what you what we have what you, what you lose mm-hmm. when a f- when you when a first book is no longer
0: a first book a first book yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. First books. I mean, it must, you know, maybe she writes about it in her essay, but what I'm feeling is like it's this pressure for publishers to just want to be able to put something that's already complete and marketable out into the world. Um, I don't know. Yeah.
1: It's part partially it's that, but I think, but there's also, I think just a cultural shift within the world of poetry that, you know, people write, People come up, people have these sort of pro- projects. I think part of it and I you know, I don't have an MFA and so I and, and so I'm speaking a little bit just from what I've heard people say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I, I wonder if part of it isn't the idea that, you know, if you do an MFA, you have you have a thesis, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and you know, a thesis implies some kind of unified thing. Right you know and, and you know you it's not you just putting your book together you're working with an advisor who's going to be and i'm not saying that's bad i just think it's a cultural shift
0: right so anyway that leads me to your your words for what those men have done so you said in the beginning that this book was more conceptual you were working towards a book in this space yeah
1: i mean yeah i was i mean the silence of men i thought of as a as a book in which i kind of said the things that I needed to say
2: mm-hmm.
1: right about myself about my life about whatever maybe mm-hmm. and 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 words for what those men have done was more like a quest was more about number one telling other people's stories
2: mm-hmm. or,
1: or, or you know at least at, at least my talking about my responses and making how, how to make sense of other people's stories yes right um but also i mean one of the questions that i live with is okay so you know i am a survivor of sexual violence
2: mm-hmm.
1: um i am also you know i'm i'm, I'm also a man and mm-hmm. and to all intents and purposes i mean except when anti-semitism sort of rears its head i'm a white guy yeah and so what you know the question you know what does it mean to to live that life and be responsible and accountable for and to whomever, um, and also to myself as a survivor. I mean, what does it mean to be true to live tr- to live my life in a true way, an honest way, with integrity, encompassing all of those identities, mm-hmm. because they are often in conflict with each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, not necessarily in, within me, but in, in, in the culture.
2: Right, right.
1: Right. And so, you know, and so the poems in The Silence of Men um, take that on. Right. And, and, and they take that on from a couple of different perspectives, right? So, I mean, on the one hand, there's the survivor perspective.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there are poems, you know, there's a whole series of poems in the book about being a father, about me and my son
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and my wife. Though, though I will though I, I will I will say that you know in in most of the poems the woman who is my wife is sort of a composite character
0: yeah
1: <laughs> um it's not it's not you know there, there, the one po- the one poem in which she is not a composite character is the one um stepping out into the gaze of Tehran's great male eye
0: uh, I think uh, I earmarked that one
1: is 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 that's the one because my wife is from Iran okay. You know and and so that is the one where she is not a composite character but in the other one she pretty much is and then also kind of asking um, I mean even from the point of view you, know, you know being someone who's a writer I run a reading series mm-hmm. um, and kind of the sexual and gender politics of the writing world, which is what the poem gender politics comes down to.
0: will you will you read that poem I actually do have that one as one of the ones I want to hear. gender politics yes.
1: Sure. I haven't. I haven't actually read this is one. I, I haven't actually read this one out loud in a long time.
0: Okay. Well. <laughs>
1: Gender politics. One. You can't feel them, Danielle said. Feel what? I asked. The scars where his knife sliced into me. I was. He kept saying raw meat on his plate. I'd wanted her to feel that I, too, had looked up from the roadside ditch he left her to die in, had watched through that same crosshatch of branches the cotton candy clouds moving west with the traffic, spit from my own mouth the dirt he forced into hers, and laughed at the little boy, straight out of Law & Order SVU, she'd smiled, whose mother left the car idling to rush him to the edge so he could pee. Mommy! Mommy! There's a lady down there. Danielle took my hand in hers. Those scars, she whispered, pulling on her clothes. We both know they're there. Don't, she said, when I stood to walk her to the door. Two. Three months later, in a letter from somewhere she called far enough away, Danielle sent these lines. And when he was done puffing me, he pulled my head back by the hair, hissed through clenched teeth that he was going to shoot in my mouth. And if I let a single drop of him spill, whore that I was, he'd slit my throat. And who would miss me anyway? Three. The night before she flew to France, as the last of her roasted lamb cooled between us, Danielle pushed my farewell gift across the table. A woman's genitals sketched in pencil filled the page. Danielle had drawn the clitoral hood as the hood of a cloak, the labia minora as the cloak's flowing fabric, which the wearer held open, arms spread wide, and in the lower right-hand corner, this... Learning to write poems has been easier than loving people and harder than counting syllables. But words grow and sentences shape time into meaning and learning to let that happen has been learning to shape my body and I am my body into somewhere I can live. Four. Dear Richard, I'm sure you've heard by now that I refused to let your friend publish my book. I'm sorry it's taken me this long to tell you myself, but you've known him so much longer than you've known me. I guess I was afraid. I sent your friend my manuscript a couple of months after I got to France. You can imagine how excited I was when he wrote back almost immediately, saying he'd be honored to publish it. More than that, he said he'd be visiting friends in Paris during the coming weeks. They lived just down the block from a small bookstore, and since he made it a point to hear all his authors read at least once before publishing them, he said he would tried to arrange a reading there for me, which he did. The bookstore was small, maybe the size of your old one-bedroom apartment, but it was perfectly suited to the warmth and generosity of the people who came to hear me. At the pub we went to afterwards, I stood silent at the bar, trying to keep up as they discussed in French the poems I would read to them in English. During a lull in the conversation, your friend sidled up to me and offered to buy me a beer, raising what he said was his third scotch to toast my work. I smiled and lifted the Merlot I was sipping. When I put it down, before I had a chance to say anything, he leaned in close, cupped my elbow with one hand, and whispered, his lips almost touching my ear, Do you know why I've agreed to publish you? I left my wine on the bar and took a step back. I read all that struggled in me not to drown in a single sitting, he said, shuffling a half-step in my direction. And when I finished... He raised his tumbler for emphasis, splashing some scotch onto his shirt sleeve. When I finished, I was hard all night. Five. When I tell this story face to face, I say his name. In print, you'll understand. It's wiser if I don't.
0: Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Um, Oh.
1: So, so you want me to tell you? Yeah. Shall I tell you a little bit about the poem? Yes. Um, so um, it is. So first of all, I will say that um, I guess it, I guess for for your listeners, it, it's worth knowing that the last part in the letter,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the, the words "your friend" are bracketed, right? So right. that so that it looks, you know, as, so that there's an illusion there, so that the name of the person. Is actually taken out of the book, right? Um because while that the story itself is kind of fictionalized, that the the overall the kernel of the story is true. Mm. I have a friend who is a survivor of rape, Mm -hmm. and um she sent her poems poems that she'd written out of that experience Mm -hmm. to someone who is kind of a local poetry impresario Mm
2: -hmm. and he
1: gave her a reading and after the reading he went to um he went they went they went out to a bar and he actually said to her you know i gave you this reading because after i read your poems i was hard all night
0: oh yeah
1: um you know and she told (laughs) she told me the story and i know who the guy is and i i mean i'm not because because i was not there and i did not witness it it's all I'm. I'm not going to say his name. Right. Um. But. But he's, from what I have learned, um. I mean, he's. He's known to be a sleaze. <laughs> um. You know. And. Um. You know. And I don't want to. I, I, so. No, so, I yeah. mean, so part. I mean, th- that kernel of this poem is absolutely tr- is true.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it reminds me. I um. I was. I did a discussion with Jean Dubrow and she has a book. I can't remember the title, but we were talking um, and the book is, is really discussing the, the sexual abuse and physical abuse that she experienced um, either through her mom and so on and, and other women and herself and so on. And some of the um, assault is, you know, it's violent and, when we were talking, she said, you know, it's really, it was really important to me that none of the poems be titillizing, you know, that, that, that the, that this not be a discussion about like some kind of sexual kink, you know, and there's a, there's a balance between being able to, I mean, you don't know how people are going to read it. Obviously you're in this, in this poem itself. You know, if someone's a sleaze, right. they're going to read it because they're they're going to get whatever sleazeball thing they're going to get out of it. But right. when we're writing about these sexual sexually violent <laughs> things, um, you know, it it is there is a risk that someone will read it and think that it's sexy or that it's, you know, and, and that's so gross to think about. But, you
2: know,
1: I mean, there are people like that.
0: Yeah. It's just, it was, it was so, that, that poem was such a shock. I mean, it was, it's such a good poem, by the way. I mean, my goodness. My goodness. Um, But let, can we change, can we change tone and will you read, um, well, it's a long poem, but I wonder if you mind reading For My Son, A Kind of Prayer. Sure.
1: I will read that. This is, um, the title of the book actually comes from a line in this poem. Okay. Right, words for words for what those men have done. There's an epigraph from William Butler Yeats who has a poem called A Prayer for My Son. For they know of some most haughty deed or thought that waits upon his future days. For my son, a kind of prayer. Just before his mother pushed him through herself hard enough to split who she was wide enough for him to enter the world, I touched the top of my son's head. And after he was born, the midwife, Vivian, I think it was, held my wife's umbilical cord in a loop for me to cut, which I did, freeing our new boy's body to enter the name we had waiting for him. And then Vivian laid him against the curve of his mother's belly, giving him to the breast he would for years define his world by. And once that first taste of love was firmly lodged within him, she bundled him tight, placed him in my arms, and, while I sang his welcome in a far corner of the room, turned to assist the surgeon sewing up my wife's birth-torn flesh. I don't remember what song I chose, and it's been a decade at least since I've told anyone about my son's first moments as my son. But they've come to me here in this urologist's waiting room because I picked up from the coffee table this copy of The Nation another patient must have left behind. And the first article I opened to, Silence Equals Rape by Jan Goodwin, introduced me to Shashir, six years old and gang-raped in the Congo. When they found her, she was starving, and when they found her, she could neither walk nor talk, and so they stitched together the parts of her the men had ruptured, fed her, gave her clothing, and that night she slept, for the first time since no one knew when, in a bed that was not the bush the militia had left her to die in. And maybe the tent walls shaping the room she lived in when Goodwin learned she existed had come to mean for her a kind of safety." And maybe that safety was fertile ground, where words for what those men had done to her dropped like seeds from the mouths of those who rescued her and began to take root. I have not been gang-raped, but a white man much older than I was when I was twelve forced his penis into my mouth, seared the back of my throat with what he poured out of himself and sealed into silence everything that took me fifteen years of pushing till who I was split wide enough that who I am could speak his first true words. Mr. Newman, the nurse, white blonde, about my age, calls my name, one of the few she hasn't butchered, sitting as I am among the men of Jackson Heights, where names that would twist the tongue of any English speaker are common. But I'm not yet ready to leave Goodwin's peace. Maria was seventy when the interahamwe tied her legs apart like a goat before slaughter, and the women Goodwin leaves nameless, most of them dead or dying from infection, their labia pierced and padlocked when the men who raped them were done, the story belongs to them as well, mister Newman. I put the magazine down. Bear those women with me as I rise towards the door. I need to walk through so I can place in this doctor's hand the left testicle I found a bump on three days ago. A few of my fellow patients glance up as I pass, one of them smiling, nodding his head as if to say, don't worry, it'll all work out. I smile back. Grateful for his small empathy, notice as I do that the flag pin on his lapel and the name of the newspaper folded in his lap place his origin in, or at least his allegiance to, a country making headlines for stories like Shashir's. Mm -hmm. And I know this doesn't happen only over there. And of course, no man in this room, what man could ever do enough to end it? So I'm thinking maybe this is where we're supposed to be, a kind of purgatory, pregnant with poetic justice. The door shuts behind me. This way, please, the nurse grins over her shoulder, leading me in silence to the room where I will wait. A four-color poster of my reproductive system dominates the wall. Its peasant, I notice, includes the foreskin, the plastic model sitting on the cabinet does not something to ask the doctor about but when he arrives my only thought resembles a prayer he snaps on latex gloves i let my pants fall to my ankles my underwear to just below my knees and i watch him handle what the language my son shares with his mother calls my tochma, my eggs it's probably nothing The doctor nods sagely, stepping back, peeling the rubber off his hands. I pull my clothing up, tuck in my shirt. Still, he continues, I'm fumbling with my zipper. Let's check it again six months from now. He offers a smile with his hand for me to shake, turns from the squeeze he gives mine as if I'm already gone and walks off to treat the next man in the next room. I head back out the way I came, where my friend smiles and nods again. Lifting his hand in a farewell, I answer with my own nod and smile. The reprieve I've just gotten, predisposing me not to assume the worst of anyone. Outside, the wind rips the hood away from my head. Snow gusts slap back and forth across my cheeks, and I am reminded how quickly beauty turns cold, how easily death wears friendship's face. I want to know how a man who loves his children does not see their faces in the eyes of the girl whose vadinage he is opening with a bottle or a bayonet. I want to know how a woman's screams beneath the fourth or fifth or eleventh man in line does not recall for even one of them the voice of a woman who loves him, of a woman he has loved. My son will never know Shashir, but he will know men who could have been, who'd gladly be among the ones who violated her. And he'll know women and other men like me who carry violation within them. A time will come, because it comes to all of us, when he'll be forced to choose where his allegiance lies. These words are for him on the day of that decision.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Well, thank you for your book. You're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area. That was an interview with Richard Jeffrey Newman, who is an amazing poet, as you heard. Um, and please remember that the views expressed on the show are not those of not necessarily those of KKUP. So uh, here at KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM, we are a non-commercial radio staffed completely by volunteers and supported 100% by our listeners. We have provided an alternate source for music and information not readily available on other stations for over 40 years. By maintaining a separation from corporate backing, underwriting, or any other source of funding that might place demands on our programming, we're free to entertain and educate the listening community in a unique way. Every day we offer music ranging from comical to classical, reggae to barbershop, new age to oldies, not to mention our amazing poetry show. If you find this station worth supporting, please become a member. You can do that online. Uh, You can click the link that says uh, become a member or you can give me a call here at the studio. I'll be here until about 930. Uh, Give me a call. The numbers are 408-260-260 two nine 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 if you're in the eight three one our number has changed and our new number is eight three one four eight zero one nine 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 i'm going to finish off the night with some music and then you'll have um joe sojo who's here with the ethnic connection so here we go i'm going to play a song called the moon in the sky and it's by the artist uh or the the band called Sade. here we go let's see all right I'll be back in a couple weeks. Good night, everyone. You're in tune to KKUP.